Hi, everybody. Hello, hello. Are you enjoying the weather? I tell you what, I've lived in Chicago all my life. Well, you know, since I got here. Um, and uh, I don't remember Chicago having two seasons. I don't. I don't remember Chicago having winter and then summer. I remember there being a spring and a fall. Anybody else like old enough? Yeah. So uh, I don't know what that means, but uh, I'm glad it's warmer. And then, of course, like in two weeks, we'll be complaining about how hot it is, right? Yeah. That's what happens if you live in Chicago. Hey, we are talking about the Holy Spirit. And I am encouraged that uh, there hasn't been a significant drop off <laughs> in attendance. So this is good. All right, so, and some of you actually enjoy being here, looking forward to what we've been talking about. Hey, so I've been sharing stories and emails of folks, and the Holy Spirit is doing a work in, and uh, here's another one. You ready? By the way, I continue to encourage you guys to send these over. The Holy Spirit has been flooding me with euphoric senses of peace and love and wholeness sporadically for the past few months and this has been a huge blessing by the way that i mentioned this person is a, a fairly new christian typing it does no justice i'd have to explain in person i've never experienced this before and i praise god and then she goes on to say nearly everything that you're preaching about peter is somewhat new to me Thinking of the Holy Spirit as a person, a being with feelings is new, but it makes perfect sense in the world now that you're preaching on it. Your discussion with what the Spirit does, how he convicts, how he assures and guides, how he intercedes, how he directs, how he warns, etc., really was pretty wonderful. And I could say so much about times when the Spirit has done each and every one of those things. Can anybody relate? The box's visual presentation, which you will see again today, I am happy to announce, is, was also incredible and taught me that the king of doubt and deceit, Satan, has woven a lie already inside of me that I'm not good enough to be with God. That, and when I slip up, that I have to earn it. His love, that is. It has really been a lot in a relatively short amount of time, and it will likely take me years to fully grasp and digest it all. To which God's people said, amen, right? Take years, right? And she says, I will likely need to be taught it again and again and again. To which God's people said, amen. It's us. Isn't that our story? Do you really need more new information? And lastly, she says, and also I should mention that you're discussing Focusing on today versus a longer period of time, future, is important, and I've been noticeably doing that. Oftentimes, I pray that the Holy Spirit reveal the truth of God's will in my relationships with my boyfriend, and I never seem to get an answer. So I decided to just focus on listening to the Spirit and obeying God day by day, which you are right about. Recently, by trying to pay more attention to the Spirit, I have been more open to a lot of small and big things God seems to have put in my path that I would previously 
previously have simply rejected. The Holy Spirit seems to have alerted me to God wanting me to minister to two of my close girlfriends. The Spirit is revealing to me some of Satan's work in them in a way that's been striking because in the past I couldn't discern this aside from extreme things like murder, rape, drugs. Hmm. That's pretty powerful stuff, wouldn't you say? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Do you know what happened to you when you became a Christian? Do you know what happened to you? If you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, do you know what happened to you? Do you, do, do you realize the significance of what happened to you? The Bible says, and I'm going to need some help up there, okay? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By the way, in case you were, it's right there, okay? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Does anybody know, remember what it's like to be in sin? <laughs> yeah. Be enslaved to sin. When sin said go, you went. When sin said jump, you jumped. And you felt helpless and powerless. Do you remember how it also really felt like a deadness because many of us physically alive, but we're just existing. Oh, nothing worse than that, right? Oh, nothing worse. We were dead. Unable to know God, relate to God, love God, see God. What does God do? Colossians 1. He rescues us, though, from the dominion of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption from forgiveness of sins. So... God, out of his grace and mercy, and this is the gospel right here, while we're still lost in sin, while we're still unable to seek God, love God, know God, while we are enslaved to sin, God takes us out of the kingdom of sin, kingdom of darkness, and he brings us into the kingdom of light. Question, where are you in this picture? Did you do anything? Question, did you do anything? And this is going to be important later. Yes? When you are brought into the kingdom of Jesus, into Jesus, two things in relationship to sin change. And Romans talks about this over and over again. Number one, you are set free from the penalty of sin. There is, there is no more condemnation for those who are, where? In Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Secondly, your also relationship to sin changes in relationship to the power of sin. That is, you don't have to live the way you used to live because you are no longer the person you used to be. Your relationship to sin changes in such a way you are no longer enslaved, helplessly, hopelessly in bondage to sin. The Bible says, count yourselves, therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? Now, the Bible goes on, though, and says, Colossians 3, you died and your life is now hidden. Where are you? You are with Christ. In where? In God. 
This is what happened to you. Jesus says one more thing, though. Next verse. I am in my Father, and you are... By the way, this is all in the Bible. Did you know that? I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So, here's Jesus, and this is what we've been talking about, right? Jesus is in where? Holy Spirit, right? In you. You are where? You are in Jesus, and you and Jesus are where? In God. Because of this, the following things are true. By the way, this is on a website. I encourage you to print it. I made like a hard printout copy. This is in my Bible, and I look at it every day. Check this out. Because you are in Christ, I have been set free from sin and condemnation, set free from Satan's kingdom. Visualize, I have been forgiven of all my sins. I have been given the Holy Spirit. I have been adopted into God's family. I am justified freely by grace. I have been given all things for life of godliness. I have given authority over power of the enemy, and I have been given access to God. Furthermore, in Christ, I am free forever from sin's power, loved eternally. I am not condemned. I am one with the Lord. I am quickened by his mighty power. I am seated in the heavenly places. If this is where you are and God is in the heavenly places, where are you? You are? Yeah, see? I've been hidden with Christ in God. See how visual... Hidden with Christ in God. I am secure in Christ. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty secure to me, no? Yeah. I am more than a conqueror because in Christ I have access to the Father, an anchor to my soul, a hope that is sure and steadfast. I have power to witness. I have the mind of Christ, peace with God. Because I am in Christ, I can do all things through Christ. I find mercy and grace in times of need. I come boldly to the throne of grace. I can defeat and overcome the enemy, and I can tread Satan underfoot. Because I am in Christ, I cannot, check this out, be separated from God. Good luck prying you out of this. Because I am in Christ, I cannot be lost or perish. Good luck getting lost in there. Because I'm in Christ, I cannot be moved. Because I'm in Christ, I cannot be taken out of my Father's hands. Because I'm in Christ, I cannot be charged or accused. Because I'm in Christ, I cannot be condemned. And all of God's people say, is this good news? Now check this out. It's one thing to profess that you know this. But it's another thing to believe it. Isn't that, isn't that our challenge? Isn't that your challenge? That's why half of you are sitting there going, I know, I know, I know, I know. No emotion, no affect. I know, I know. Furthermore, some people are going experientially, it's not true, it's not true. The challenge isn't that we don't know this. The challenge is that we don't believe it. And ultimately, the way we live is not determined by what we profess. What we live is determined by what we believe. What you truly believe affects your behavior and how you live. So check this out. What is one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit? This is what the Bible says. Here's one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. 
14, John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, check this out, teach you all things and bring to your, oh, I forget, remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is a spirit of truth because his primary ministry is get you to move knowledge of this that's in your head to your heart in such a way that this truth becomes vivid and powerful. You cannot understand and live this powerful life-transforming truth on your own. It is the job and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and take these truths that we know and make them come alive. Are you with me so far? How many of you need that ministry of the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. How many of you need that? Oh, me too. I need that. I need the ministry of the Holy Spirit that when I talk about and when I realize and profess these powerful truths about my identity in Christ and who God is, it moves beyond just, yep, know that, know that. But God, the Holy Spirit takes it and he makes it come alive and it's one thing to know this, but it's, that's why the Bible says things like this. It's one thing to know that God is good, but God doesn't say, will you know that God is good? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is sensitive. But I can't. Of course you can't. I can't. But Holy Spirit. Do you need that ministry of the Spirit? Yeah. Makes it come alive. Makes it come alive. Makes it. Are you tracking with me? Yeah? Okay. Makes it come alive. Makes it come alive. Makes it, this is why, look, when you realize this, you will read your Bibles differently. Look what Paul says over and over again in his epistles. Oh, my gosh. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his, here it is, spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. He's writing to Christians. Christ already dwells in their hearts. Paul, why are you praying? By the Spirit that they may... Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's one thing to know that Christ dwells in my heart. It's another thing to... Sense it. Woo! I just got chills down my back. I don't know what that was. I don't know if it was a fan or what, but another thing to sense. Are you checking? And then he goes on. I pray that you also being rooted in establishment and love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, long, high and wide, deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love. Jesus loves me. This I know. Paul says the Holy Spirit comes and says, are you experiencing it? Are you experiencing it? This is the reason why many of us who have been oblivious to the ministry of the Holy Spirit our spiritual lives are dry and lifeless. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to do it on your own. The Holy Does this make any sense to anybody? You can clap if you want to. You know, our church allows that. Like, like what I mean by that is you're sitting there going, oh, so there's nothing wrong with me. No, there's nothing wrong with you. So it's not like they know something I don't know. None of us. 
Oh, so it's not more not. No, no, no. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not just to know that God is good, but to taste that God is good. Not just to know when you come to Jesus, he will quench your thirst, but to... Can I have another? Michael, please. How many of you, honestly, desire to just be soaked and quenched by the Spirit that this truth just comes alive in you? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Because you know what? The life that God wants for us is not one of, well, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. And so, therefore, I'm just going to, you know, the life that God intends for us. Oh, oh. And how does the Holy Spirit do this? Let me paint a picture for you. How does the Holy Spirit do this? He does it as our advocate. We find this passage in John 14, 16, and 16, 7. And this, by the way, is the main point of John chapters 14 to 16 when the Bible says the Holy Spirit is our parakaleo. Para means not to be in front, not to be behind, but to be alongside. And kaleo, listen, means to declare, to call, to argue. The best translation actually is I'm going to send you another legal advocate. And the war gets across this idea. Think of the court of law. This is a person, advocate, who represents you, who is for you, who argues on your behalf, who defends you, who is intentionally and passionately representing you, defending you, and for you against the enemies of Satan, of the world, and of our hearts. Satan of the world. And here's one example of this. Check this out. Romans chapter 18, verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul says here at the weakness, at the core of all of our weakness is fear. Fear of what? Fear of, I'm not good enough for God. Fear of, When I mess up, I'm going to be rejected by God. Fear of when I'm living my life not right. I'm not, I'm just not acceptable before God. Fear of, fear of. This is the reason why I preach on grace and salvation by grace and the gospel of grace every single week. Because if at the end of the day, you genuinely and truly believe that you are saved by grace and grace alone. You are saved by grace and grace alone. And there's not a single thing that you do to enter into this relationship with God. Question. If that is what you truly believe, will you be insecure? Would you be afraid if and when you mess up? Answer. No. If you had nothing, nothing to do with getting in Christ in this relationship, nothing. It was by grace and grace alone. Nothing. If there's nothing that you did to get into it, what makes you think you could do something to get out of it? Does it make any sense? If you did nothing, absolutely nothing to get in on the... But, but, but. If deep down inside you believe, but I did tiny little moral, I'm good. Then there is always an ongoing nagging sense of insecurity. If I mess up, rejection, fear. If I slip up, am I still accept? There's always a sense of fear. You, know, you and I don't like the idea of grace. 
We don't. It's not that we don't understand it. We don't like it. Let's be honest. We don't like it. Do you know why? Because if you are saved by grace and grace alone, there is nothing that God cannot ask of you. But if you are saved by your work, you could always say to God, that's enough. Right there. That's enough. Right. So it fills our hearts with fear. We don't like the idea of grace. Don't understand the idea of grace. We don't like, so our hearts are with fear when we mess up, when we go through hardships, trials, suffering. I'm a bad person. I, if I did better, if I just performed a little more, if I just went to church, if I just read my Bible more, if I just pray. Fear, fear, fear. What does the Holy Spirit do? I love this. Oh, oh, two waters. Thank you, Michael. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, argues with you. When you, when you go into this fear mode and you say, I, I don't know if I can be accepted, the Holy Spirit comes and says, stop acting like a slave. You are no longer a slave. You are his son. You are his daughter. He is not your boss. He is not your supervisor. He's not your employer. Where if you perform well, you're in. But if you perform bad, you're out. He is your heavenly father. There is nothing that can separate you. Holy Spirit argues, pounds this, pounds this. He's a gentleman, Wendy, you know. But he's the kind of gentleman like your husband, you know. When he needs to go, I need to pound this. I need to pound this. I need to pound this into you. The Holy Spirit comes and does that. Check this out. Verse 16. He testifies. Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits. You know what the word testify means? Any attorneys in our church? The word testifies literally. Legal language that meant a star witness in court. So the scene is a trial that's going. And the prosecution and defense are going at it, right? And there's a sort of like... Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We still don't know what the outcome is. And all of a sudden, the back door opens and the star witness walks through. And his testimony settles the case once and for all. And the Bible says, that is what the Holy Spirit does. Good news? One more thing, and then moving on. So how do you know? How can you be sure that this is what the Holy Spirit does and you're receiving the the benefits the Holy Spirit could offer you? Well, the key to the power of the Holy Spirit operating your life in this way, and I'm just going to stop right here. Isn't the end-all and be-all struggle for most of us in terms of our sin, our dysfunction, our desperate longing to be affirmed, And to find acceptance? Isn't that the core for many of us? Desperate longing to be affirmed and to find acceptance. What does the Holy Spirit do? How do we know? How do you know that you have these benefits? How do you know it's just not some 
thing out there. Just like, well, holy, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? For sure, for sure, for sure. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus says, I will send you another advocate, which means that there is a first advocate. Who is the first advocate? His name is Jesus. Check this out. Oh, track with me. First John. This is so cool. Chapter 2, verse 11. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, at which point 100% none of us goes, okay, now it's relevant for me, right? Okay, so pay attention. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Say it with me. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Okay, I got I to gotta share this because there are non-Christians among us. When the, uh, Christians too, for that, matter, for that matter. When the Bible says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Here's what the Bible is assuming, okay? One day, every single one of us in this room will stand at the court of justice. Bar of justice. And give an account for everything we've done. Do you hear me? I know that's not popular to say in our culture. There is a judgment day coming for everything that we've done. If you're not a Christian, you may operate from the function of, I make up my own laws. I make up my own rules. Nobody tells me what to do. I make up what's right or wrong. The problem is, we don't even live up to our own standards. Or the standards that we set for other people. Every single one of us knows I'm not living quite right. Even my own standards. And there is a judgment day coming. I'm a moral failure. For some of us, it lies really deep. It's in hibernation. You know what brings it out? Suffering. When suffering comes, it's amazing how all human beings, I want to get angry at God, but there's a sense of, what did I do wrong? What does Jesus do? Oh, guys, if you're taking notes, jot this down. When you believe in Jesus, the Bible says that he stands before that court of justice representing you. Here's the biblical word, interceding for you, making his case for you. Romans 8, Romans 7, Jesus lives to intercede or make intercession before the Father. And check this out. For the longest time, this is what I thought it meant. Jesus, when we mess up, would turn to God the Father and say, Father, you know Peter's a good kid. He means well. Please forgive him. And God the Father would say, by my mercy and my grace, yes. But that's not really comforting. Am I the only one? Because he's outside. I'm sitting there going, how long can Jesus keep that up? Anybody? Raise your hands if you, anybody? Yeah. How long can, how long can Jesus continue to go to the Father and go, you know what, God, I don't mean it. God the Father. He can't get his act together. I, don't, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. Or, or, or at which point does God the Father look at me and go, Peter, it's been five years. For the longest time, I thought what God, what Jesus was doing is, check this out, interceding as in pleading for mercy. That's not what Jesus does when he intercedes. You know what he does? He declares you and me not condemned, not based on mercy, but based on law of justice. He declares it's not, what do I mean? What do I mean? He stands before the Father when we sin. Jesus looks to God and says, Peter has sinned. Sin demands payment. Father, I have made the payment. Look at my broken body. Look at my shed blood. I have made the payment for the sin. And justice requires 
that there can't be two payments for that sin. So therefore, I demand not mercy, forgiveness. I demand acquittal on justice. That is wonderful news. Why? Because when you mess up and sin, and Paul says, therefore there's now no condemnation, you don't have to wonder how long he's going to keep it up. Jesus turns to the Father and says, made the payment. Forgiveness. Is that good news? I don't know. I just want to hit somebody right now, like in a good way. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Guys, you know what I'm talking about? Like when you, like, you want to do like a chest bump or something? Michael, Michael, come on. I'm just kidding. Is this good news? There is therefore any time from here on out in our church when you hear the gospel proclaimed and when you hear me go, there's no condemnation. You remember that Jesus says, based on justice, I demand acquittal not mercy. It's done. It's done. Now, Satan comes and says, but he's not going to for It's done. Is this good news? <laughs> for those of us that are sitting there going, it is good news, but Peter, it's doing nothing for me right now. That's okay. That's okay. Because it is the work of who? Say it with me. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, two-minute review on where we've been so far, okay? That wasn't the review about the sermon series. Here's the sermon series. Uh, three points real quick because we're going to hammer this away at you. First is the Christian life is impo- it's not just difficult. Put it up there. It is, say it with me, impossible. John 15, 5. I'm divine and you are the branches. If a man remains me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from him, you can do what? And in Greek, that means what? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Someone's go, in Greek, it's got to mean like, no, it means what? Nothing. A quick thing. Along with the impossibility of Christian life. Do you also notice the Bible says, as a Christian, when you abide in him, spirit lives in you, you are going to bear much fruit. Not little fruit. What is it? Much fruit. And much in Greek means much. I'm just going to say this one thing and then move on. In Christian communities, when we see somebody who claims to be a Christian and there's no fruit in their lives, you and I need to keep that person accountable. Can I say that again? When I'm not bearing fruit, I don't need you to come, put your arm around me and go, there, there. We're all sinners. Yes, I know that. Deeply. You don't have to remind me. What we need to do is to lovingly, not in a self-righteous way, lovingly say, you need to get back on track. And that's okay to say. See, in Christianity, we got it backwards. Christians judge people outside the church. When the Bible says, don't do that. We judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. What the heck is that all about? And then when it comes to Christians, we go, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be called self-righteous. I don't, so I'm going to lower the bar and never say a word. Backwards. 
Bible says when it comes to non-Christians, love them unconditionally. Don't ever judge them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Leave it to him. When it comes to Christians, are you bearing fruit? Am I bearing fruit? Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in us? I feel real uncomfortable right now. That's the Holy Spirit. Because a Christian life is impossible, we need a helper. John 14, 16, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be where? In you. If you're a Christian, you don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit. Where is he? He's in you. And by the way, he will be with you forever. It's permanent. It's permanent. You don't have to wonder where he's going to go. Bye-bye. He is in there permanently. Why? To empower you, to energize you, to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and brings with him for you the full capacity of his power. How else can you possibly explain the Christian life? Will somebody tell me? How else can you possibly explain the demands of the Christian life? Somebody please tell me that. How? It's a cruel joke. If we think that the Christian life can be done on our own strength, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that which is impossible on our own. Third point, the Christian life as God intended is only possible. So when the Holy Spirit who lives in us, lives through us, the Christian life for us. Do you think Jesus thought this was important? It was so important that before he sent them out to change the world, this is what he says in Acts chapter 1. On one occasion, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was so important for Jesus that he tells his disciples, you want to change the world? You want to love the poor? You want to live a holy, godly life? You want your life to be unexplainable? You need to wait. Because without what I'm going to send you, your mission is impossible. Has that sunk into you yet? Come on. Has that sunk into me? I mean, seriously, guys. Has that sunk into you yet? That, that you and I are not capable of doing this thing called, oh yeah, maybe we're capable of doing the version of Christian life that we sort of have in our minds. But the ethical demands of the Christian life, I mean, for crying out loud, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sorry, I can't. God goes, I know you can't. I can't love my neighbor as myself. I know you can't. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. To empower you to do that which you cannot do on your own. Do you know this? I'll tell you how far we've strayed away from this, right? How many times have you prayed, God, send me your peace. I need your peace. Going through a difficult, tough time, God, send me your peace. Why are you asking to God send peace when the Prince of Peace lives inside of you? And what we're called to do is not ask him to come and send some peace like it's out there, but it's to acknowledge and appropriate the all-surpassing peace of God that lives in us. Oh, my gosh. Forgiveness? Forgiveness? Good luck, right? But what would it be like if you know that the person who hung on the cross and looked at his enemies and said, Father, forgive them for they not know what they do, that that person lives inside of you? And that with his power and his enablement, that you and I could live the Christian life? Okay, I got one last thing before we go on to like part one of two parts, and that's this. 
have all of these like backwards things going on in my head. Here's what I mean. Don't you think we have it backwards? Maybe just me. I have it backwards. What do I mean? I have enormous expectations of people and I have tiny puny expectations of God. I didn't realize this. I, I have enormous expectations of people. That's why I'm so judgmental. That's why I'm so critical. I, I look at other people and I go, I have enormous expectations for you. And when it comes to God, I look at my prayer life. I look at my approach faith. I expect little to nothing of God. What is wrong with this picture? Shouldn't it be like, this? Does this resonate with anybody? Don't we need to raise expectations of God that He can do a work in us that is unexplainable, that we can be life and world changers? And when it comes to people, we extend grace. Oh, which are you? Which are you? I have enormous expectations of people when it comes to God, nothing. Or, Peter, I have enormous expectations of God. And I'm gracious with you. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. This is part one of part two of a year-long series. Did that make sense? <laughs> so this week and next week, we are going to talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And oh, Lord, there's so much nonsense about it. So much nonsense about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Can I, can I get an amen? Hi, when it comes to what it means to be filled with the Spirit, some people think being filled with the Spirit is like there's an empty space in my heart. And I need you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill that empty space, which is buffoonery because the Holy Spirit is already where? In you! You need to act inappropriate. Secondly, some people go, Holy Spirit, fill me is something we just passively wait and go, fill me. Fill, fill. And we don't do it. It's like, fill me. And some of us think like, okay, I need to have more faith. Faith, faith, fill, fill me. And the Bible says, be filled. It's a command. The Bible is saying, do it. How do I do it? Be filled. That's what we're going to look at. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children. Can we just stop right there? Can you do this? <laughs> Can you do this? Other translation? Imitate God. How many amen? I can do that right now. Anybody? Can you do this? Answer? No. Do you need the Holy Spirit? Verse 2, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh, can you guys all look up here, please, and pay attention. The ultimate aim of the Christian life and the end result of all that God desires for each and every one of us is to become more like Jesus. That is the primary aim of the Holy Spirit. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is not giftedness, it's not supernatural, miraculous, but it is a fact that you are becoming more like Jesus. Put it another way, God is way more concerned about the fruit of the Spirit than he is about the gifts of the Spirit. 
You are a danger to this body if you're extremely gifted and yet your character stinks. You are, I have seen too many people extremely gifted make a mess out of things because they lack the character and the fruit of the Spirit, the thing that God is concerned about in you is not what you can do for God, but that you become more like Jesus. And notice, do you notice the characteristic trait that characterizes what Jesus is like? Which is it? Do you see it? It is what? Love. Why is it that in the Christian church, we think that the sign of spiritual maturity is knowledge? It's how much you know. Why do we think that the evidence of spiritual maturity is how much you know? The Bible says the sign of spiritual maturity is not how much do you know, but it's how well do you love? The reason why I say this is because I'll be, I'll be included in one of these people. There's so many times where I'd rather be right than loving. Can anybody else relate? I'd rather be right than loving. I'd rather win an argument than love somebody to Jesus. And the Bible says you could have all the knowledge in the world, 1 Corinthians 13, but if you don't have love, you're like a noisy gong, gong, gong. And the Bible also says you could give everything that you have to the poor. Oh, my gosh. And you could surrender your body to the flames. You could be martyred. But if you have not love, you what? Profit nothing. What we're talking about for this series is not supernatural, miraculous. We'll get there. But the critical thing is, are you becoming more like Jesus? And the evidence that you're becoming more like Jesus is what? How well do you love does anybody else struggle with this one oh my gosh it's me this is i'm preaching to myself this morning i'm preaching to myself and then paul lists a bunch of commands in verses 3 to 14 which we're going to skip for today and then it goes on to verse 15 be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the lord's will is how many of you are people are wanting to know god's will uh, here's one like undisputable clear one coming up. You ready? Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, say it with me. Say it with me. Ready? Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun. We're going to learn, but we're going to have fun. Okay? We're going to do a little Bible study. So if you're taking notes, pay attention. Okay, here we go. In the Bible. We're going we're gonna to break this sucker down, be filled. We're going we're gonna to break it. We're going to break it down, and we're going to, okay, her. In the Bible, we are never commanded. We are never commanded. Unlike here, we'll get to that. To be baptized in the Spirit, to be indwelt in the Spirit, or to be sealed by the Spirit. Never. Why? Because those things are already true of the Christian the moment you become a Christian. Did you hear what I said? The moment that you become a Christian, that's why the Bible says, be baptized or be indwelt or, 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 or be, be, be sealed. These things are all true of the Christian the moment you become a Christian. And secondly, it is a work that the Holy Spirit does for you. But here, Paul says, be filled. You do something. You participate in it. You actively participate in this process of being filled, whatever that means. We're going to get to that. And secondly, it is something that happens not just once in a lifetime, but 
over and over and over and over again. Are you tracking with me so far, church? Say yes if you are. Okay. We're going to get to what that means. Verse 19, let's finish this passage. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Really quick, one of the signs that you are spirit-filled is attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving. Find me a grumbler. Find me a complainer. No, 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 no. That's how I complain. Find me somebody who lacks zero sense of gratitude, thanksgiving, and you see somebody who is not filled with the Spirit and is distant from the Spirit. And we'll see why next week. The interpretive key. The interpretive key for this Understanding this passage, just two simple words, be filled, is the fact that there are actually two commands. Check this out. There's a negative command which says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Good word. Good word. Debauchery. Everybody say debauchery. Debauchery. Say it once again. Ready? Debauchery. Debauchery. And another version is dissipation. Don't you love these words? Dissipate. Like you can say it with emphasis. Ready? Say it with me. Dissipation. Go ahead. Say dissipation. So do not get drunk on wine, least of that, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is being contrasted with being drunk. Now, one of the most clear mistakes that people make, and I need to clear this up, is people think that being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk in a sense that you get emotionally out of control. So it's like divine intoxication. It's like divine inebriation. It's like that you're filled with the spirit, just like you lose control. Anybody? Anybody? How many of you have actually seen people like that? Yeah. That is the reason why, for the longest time, I wanted nothing to do with this. I wanted nothing to do, nothing to do with being filled with the spirit. Because I looked at people who seemed like out of control, emotionally out of control, and I thought, if that's what it's like to be filled with the spirit, I don't want that. The spirit-filled Christian, though, and this is so huge, you guys, is never out of control this way. Matter of fact, you realize one of the characteristic attributes of being filled with the spirit in Galatians 5 is self-control. Being filled with the spirit leads to deep sense of self-control and balance. Not Hopelessly out of control. Being filled with the Spirit is far from being out of control, but it's being in total control. It's not the first thing you think of, is it? When you think of being Spirit-filled, don't you think somebody who's wild, somebody who's out of control? Do you think of someone who is, have you ever seen someone whose voice is trained and someone whose voice is not trained? Someone whose voice is trained, total control. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's get to this. Drunk. These are words that have significant meaning. What does it mean to be drunk? Being drunk literally means, listen to these words, to be soaked, to be saturated, and to be dominated by. To be drunk means to be soaked, to be saturated, and to be dominated by. And what makes you drunk, it's not how much alcohol you've had, but how much the alcohol has you. Uh, people that have drank with me, I drink one wine, a glass of red wine, which I love my favorite. My face turns bright red. 
Okay? My eyes get like blood red shot. And my wife actually tells me that I turn into a different person. That's what she says. So when I have two glasses of red wine, you don't want to be around me. Because I would stumble you. Okay? That's what happens to me. I've had friends, though. Good drink, four, five, six, seven glasses of wine. You know who I'm talking to, right? Seven glasses of wine. And it doesn't do anything to them. I'm like, wow, that is pretty incredible. Being drunk has nothing to do with how much alcohol you consume. Being drunk is what? How much the alcohol has you. To be drunk, follow me, is to be under the tremendous influence and control of alcohol. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under tremendous influence and tremendous effect of the Holy Spirit. You following me so far? Do not get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Just as you are totally under the influence and control and effect of alcohol when you're drunk, when you are filled with the Spirit, you are absolutely and utterly and totally under the influence of, the effect of, and the control of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? How do you know if you're under the influence of the Spirit? Here's one way to find out. And it's so counterintuitive. That you guys gonna be like, that makes sense, but it doesn't. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Again, the contrast. Do not get drunk on wine, for that leads to debauchery. Older de- translations, debauchery, I need to sit for this, okay? Older translations say that debauchery literally means to waste dissipation, right? To waste, to squander, to deplete, to be spent. The picture is somebody who is drunk, and they're just totally exhausted, and they're wasting a lot of energy and getting nowhere. Anybody seen (laughs) smile if this is something that you're familiar with? Yes. Okay. So the picture is someone who is totally exhausted, totally spent, totally wasted, totally expending energy and getting nowhere. The only other word where this appears is in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, where it says of the prodigal son, he squandered his wealth in wild living, squandered dissipation, debauchery, debauchery to be wasted, to squander, to deplete, hopelessly out of control. Application. If you tell me that you're spirit-filled and your life yet, if you tell me that you're spirit-filled and yet your life is out of control in regards to your time, in regards to your money, in regards to your tongue, in regards to your body, in regards to your life, something else is going on, but you are not filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is opposite of dissipation, to be wasted, to bleed, to, to exhaust, lots of energy getting nowhere. Let me put the picture for you. Ever see someone who's drunk? He's got all the time in the world. Why? He has no idea where he is, where he needs to go, what he needs to be doing. To be Spirit-filled means, see, I told you this is counterintuitive. To be spirit-filled means you have absolute control of how you spend your time. You are wise in redeeming your time. If you waste money, you could always make more money. If you waste time, you can't make more time. 
I told you this would be counterintuitive, right? Can I ask you something? Debauchery or filled with the Spirit? Filled with the Spirit. Have you seen someone's drunk? What about energy? Energy, someone who's drunk. I would characterize someone who's drunk as expending a lot of energy and getting nowhere. <laughs> yes? Lots of energy, getting nowhere. If you are filled with the Spirit, you have absolute self-control about how you spend your energy, and you have a laser focus about your investment. Are you tracking? One more. Judgment. Judgment. Ever see someone who's drunk? I would say they lack judgment. Ever been to a karaoke bar? <laughs> say yes, it's okay. We're not going to judge you. <laughs> Ever been to a karaoke bar? Ever see someone who is drunk at a karaoke bar? That is what I call someone who lacks complete sense of judgment and perception. Why? He thinks he could sing. <laughs> and he's out there doing all kinds of things that he has no business doing because he lacks total judgment about what he is capable of doing and what he's not. A spirit-filled person is someone with crystal clear judgment about what you're capable of and what you're not. To be spirit-filled. Forget about supernatural, that stuff. We'll get to that. To be spirit-filled means there's a sense of balance and self-control about your time, your energy, your effort, your judgment. It is not someone who is hopelessly out of control and very showy and flamboyant. It is somebody who is anchored, who is deep. One other, a couple other examples, and then we're done. To be spirit-filled, debauchery, exhaustion, dissipation. And this, oh, I need to share with you. There are some Christian circles that think that being filled with the spirit means you fake an emotion. I lost my job. Well, praise the Lord. Force an emotion. A loved person, a person somebody I love has cancer, but you know what? God is good all the time, all the time. God, if we force an emotion. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's exhausting. Is it not? The love, example I love is Job. Do you remember Job? Job? He loses his family. He loses all of his wealth. Right? And he gets sores on his body. You know what he does? Two things. One hand, he yells. He complains. God, you. And the Bible says, on the other hand, he sinned not. Some Christians today will look at Job tearing his clothes in sackcloth and ashes. And what do these Christians say to someone like Job? That brother has lost the victory. That brother needs to get on and be filled with the garbage. What does Job do? He's honest. He says, God, I'm angry. I can't stand this. And yet he sinned not. People that say being filled with the Spirit is forcing an emotion that says, well, praise the Lord, everything is okay. And they never go to God. They will be exhausted and spent. That's not what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Lastly, being drunk, which is leading to dissipation, debauchery, to be exhausted, to be wasted. Grace, you can come on up. We're finishing up. Oh, guys, guys. Oh. I, uh, I grew up. I grew up in ministry circles. <laughs> I grew up in ministry circles, man, where uh, 
If you are filled with the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, you went hard for the Lord <laughs> until you were burnt out and exhausted. Anybody else? I grew up in a tradition where those were my heroes. Peter, look at those men and women. They're filled with the Spirit, and they're charging to do things for the Lord in ministry. And they're exhausted. They're totally wasted. And that's a badge of honor. Let me just be very blunt. And I'm preaching to myself this morning as I say to you. Are you so busy doing things for God that you're totally burnt out? Are you so busy doing things for God that you're totally, totally burnt out? Listen. There is an inevitable weariness that comes from doing ministry, inevitable weariness and fatigue that comes from even Jesus had to get away to be restored so he could do ministry again. And there is a sense in which ministry and doing things for God brings about fatigue and weariness. But what I'm talking about is an ungodly exhaustion and depletion that comes from doing things for God that God never called you to do. That God never calls you to do. The Bible, Ephesians 5, and we'll talk more about this next week when it says, make use of every opportunity. Literally, it means redeem the time. You know what that means? That means, listen, please listen to me, please. That means that our Heavenly Father who loves you will never give you more to do in a day or the week or the month than you can do. Your heavenly father will never give you more to do in a day or the week or the month you can do. And by the way, don't confuse this with the whole, but aren't you always preaching that God will send us out into doing things that we can't do on our own? Yes, but don't confuse. You know what this is? This is about you not being filled with the spirit and lacking self-control to say no. This is about you and me being driven by an addiction to want to please people that we have no margins and balance in our lives. And we do things that the Spirit never, ever prompted us to do. This is about us not being filled and sensitive to the Spirit, that we lack wisdom and discernment to say, that's a great thing, but I don't want to do that now with those people at this time. The Spirit is not a fool. The Holy Spirit never calls you to do things. In Old Testament, God comes and says to Israel, I'm sending you manna. Don't save it. Eat it today. Well, we're going to save it anyway. Next day, it's totally rotted. God says, what I give you today, you consume today so that you will learn that today and only today is possible because of me. The New Testament Give us this day our daily bread. Being filled with the Spirit is not charging out to tackle any and every long. And please, can I say this? I beg of you. Can we not point fingers at other people when we're burned out and depleted to say, hey, if you didn't, can we not do that? And can we maybe admit I'm addicted to other people's approval? I find my significance and identity in the fact that people need me. 
The Spirit never called me to do that. The Holy Spirit's leading never leads to exhaustion and depletion. God will not give you more to do today or next week or next month than you can do. And if you have more to do than today, this week, and next month, it's not what God gave you to do. It's what you gave you to do. It's what other people gave you to do. It's not what God gave you to do. Let me switch gears. On the other hand, there are some of you who don't do jack. Can I say that one more? There's some of you, and I say this lovingly, who don't do jack. You know, I'm not yelling at you. Here's the reason why I'm saying that. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, manifested Holy Spirit, is given, 1 Corinthians 12, for the common good. That is, the Holy Spirit's empowerment, ministry, Holy Spirit's anointing comes to those men and women who are working for the common good of this church body. That means that the awareness of your spirit's power in your life and the fullness of the spirit's power in your life has direct relationship to how much you love this community and extending yourself for this community. Can I ask you a question? I've done it all morning, so I'm going to ask you another one. What would this church like today if everybody in this church was as committed as you are? Ask yourself, would our church be lifeless or would our church be powerful? What would our church look like if everybody in this church was as committed as you are with your time, with your energy, and with your resources? What would our church look like? Because the Bible says the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given for the common good. It's not for you yourself. It's so that you can minister and build up this body. We need you to be more than just an addition. We need you to recognize without you, none of this is possible. So this isn't me going, isn't it about time you get involved? We're tired of you being a consumer and just coming and sitting and going home. This is about me going, I cannot talk about the fullness of the Holy Spirit without you realizing that unless you are working for the common good, you will not encounter the Holy Spirit. You can't. I'm going to say one last thing, and then I'm doing one more thing, and then we're done. Here's what we're going for next week. Here's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit. We'll talk about that. Is living my life sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that His influence and His leading dominate our entire being. Being filled with the Spirit is a moment by living sensitive to and dependent upon the leading and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that His influence and His leading dominate my entire being. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a living by moment by moment dependence on the Holy Spirit in such a way that I'm sensitive to and I'm dependent upon his leading and his influence. That all that I am, my prayer is, God, have your way.